Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors are Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, new leadership at the Professional Managers Association. Also, new proposed privacy rules from the Federal Labor Relations Authority. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. First up, though, the next big idea to improve customer service across the federal government might start out with a few short sentences. The General Services Administration's Tech Accelerator, 10X, is counting on feedback from federal employees to change the way agencies serve the public. 10X this year is counting on feds to make moonshot pitches that could have a transformative impact in service delivery. For more on the program's latest work, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with 10X's communications lead, Will Cahoe. 10X is an investment program that is based on the belief that the government can invest in the ideas and creativity of its own workforce to solve real problems. As far as where it came from, I'll take us back to 2015. And I think it's fair to say that around that time in the federal technology space, there was a growing awareness that it was time to try to do things differently, right? There were some high profile IT projects in government that weren't delivering. And it seemed like maybe government tech wasn't keeping up with the needs of the public. So there was this question of how do we do things differently? And out of that, GSA basically reserved a a portion of a funding that we use, congressionally appropriated funding from Congress, and they set it aside for new good for government products and services. And that was the language. So the question then became, how do we responsibly govern this funding on behalf of the taxpayers? How do we make sure that we're delivering new good for government products and services with such a large mandate? So GSA kind of looked around and said, well, what can we learn from the private sector? I think this is another time, probably back then and continuing today, when there's still a lot of conversation in the federal space around government should work more like a business or government should learn from the private sector. And so we did that. And we went out and we talked to venture capitalists and venture firms out in the private sector to see how they get new ideas spun up and how they mitigate risk and how they would view some of the challenges that we've seen in government technology. And out of that came 10X after a few iterations. 2017 is when we rebranded to 10X and we've been going strong ever since then. All right. And the whole name of the game here is that you guys are asking federal employees to pitch their ideas of what could be the next big tech project here. What types of ideas is 10X looking for from the federal workforce at this point? We accept a broad range of ideas across the federal technology ecosystem. And there are really just a few things to keep in mind. We don't want to put too many parameters around it because we really want folks to feel like their idea will be taken seriously no matter sort of what field of technology it's in. And that's absolutely the case. Every idea we receive, we will read and evaluate. Each year, we choose a couple investment themes. And these are areas of the technology system or of the policy system, or I should say technology space or policy space, where we want to grow a little portfolio, where we want to do some learning and see if there is a place where 10x can deliver impact. And so this year, our two themes, they've been building on some work that we've been doing over the last couple of years. But one theme is reimagining public engagement. So to all your federal listeners out there, we want ideas for how the government can use technology differently to help simply engage with the public. So these are ways to elevate, say, community-level concerns to government. These are ways of reimagining how uh, government websites work or how people can interact with them, how what customer service delivery looks like for the government. Questions around that. Another theme that we have this year is equity and delivery. We always 
choose our projects based on the belief that this is going to lead to an equitable outcome, that we're going to serve the public better. So we always do this, but we think it's, it's interesting and really impactful to really point people in a way and say, look at look at your day-to-day role, look at your agency's mission delivery. What do you see? How do you see that agencies could do better for the public in ways that are inequitable or that are unfair or that reinforce injustices from the past? Look there and see what ideas you come up with. And the reason we have these two broad categories is because we trust and we believe that federal employees all across the government are the folks with the ideas. We don't believe that um, the best tech ideas are going to come exclusively from a GAO report or from a CIO or a CTO level. We think that the folks on the front lines of public service, the people out there doing the mission from anyone from a GS1 all the way up to SES, they see the problems, they see the opportunities, they have the ideas. And so that's how we point folks in these directions. And the last thing I'll say is that we want moonshot ideas. And I would love for your listeners to just sort of think about that and interpret it more or less for themselves because we don't have a strict definition. Here's the reason we talk about moonshots. We want big, bold, ambitious ideas that can solve long-standing problems in government that could be transformative if changed. And so to think of some of these ideas, I encourage your listeners to just ask themselves, if I could wave a magic wand and solve one problem that I see federal agencies struggling with, what could it be? And don't be afraid to dream big because 10X, one of our jobs is we're optimists. We say yes, we want to fund these risky, unproven ideas. We want to take on these heavy bets. I'll give you just one example of a, of a moonshot idea uh, that 10X has been working on for a few years. What if any person in the public who has applied for government service, a SNAP benefit, a social security card, anything like that, they can immediately see the status of their application on their phone? That's not the case right now, right? And out in the private sector, you could get a text from a bank saying, hey, your credit card statement's available. You're going to get an email saying, hey, you're eligible for an upgrade to a phone plan. We are used to these really high quality seamless customer service experiences. But that's not always the case in the federal government. We don't have these technologies. And that is why 10X is a great place to bring your creativity, to bring these ideas, because we can put some technology muscle behind them and really try to make them happen. And so a recent success of 10X is uh, Notify.gov. This is a shared services technology that is going to help federal agencies notify their constituents and their customers about any number of things. It could be an application deadline. It could be a you know missing documentation. Please fill in your application. It could be any number of things. Use your imagination. The point is, think of how transformative it could be if all Americans could just immediately get information on something that they've submitted to the government. That's a moonshot idea. Aim high, that seems to be the thing to uh, keep in mind here. After that federal employee submits an idea to 10X, what happens from there? What do you guys do with those ideas? And what do you do to determine which are the ones that are viable to scale up into some sort of pilot or proof of concept? Um, So first thing I want to say is even before we get here, even before the federal employee submits an idea, it's very quick and easy to get here because any federal employee can submit an idea to 10X through our website, 10x.gsa.gov, 24-7. You can submit it if you wake up at 4 a.m. and have this brilliant idea. Ideas only need to be three sentences. You can write it in five minutes. So quick, easy entry. We keep the barrier for entry very low. Everyone can participate. Now, once you submit your idea once a year, and this year it's going to be in a couple months from now, the 10X folks get together. We read hundreds of these ideas, we make notes, we think carefully about them, we look at our investment priorities, we evaluate them ourselves, and then we bring in folks to DC for a big three-day workshop where we really get into the nitty-gritty. We go through all of these ideas 
um, you know, we evaluate them, we talk about what could the impact of this be? Who is being affected? Is this something that's a good fit for 10X? Are we persuaded by this idea? And we look at all these ideas and of say about 200 ideas we'll probably be evaluating. We fund between 10 and 20, kind of depending on the funding situation. So of those 200, we whittle it down to say 10. And at that point, we're gonna kick it off. And this is when it turns into a real technology project. Over the life cycle of a 10X investment, there are four possible phases. And I say possible because there are specific times throughout the life cycle of a project when we intentionally stop and we ask ourselves, is this still a promising project? Is this going to deliver for the public? Is this going to improve lives? Is this going to improve processes? Is this worth it? Is this worth our time? Is this worth our money? We stop and ask that question three different times over the life cycle of a project. And so the reason why we ask these questions and the reason why if a project feels like maybe it's going sideways or maybe it's not gonna deliver the impact that we thought it could, we are not afraid to say no. So we will close projects down when the research and when the product development shows like maybe it's not going in the right place. And the reason we do this is because we don't want to continue to pour funding and resources into an idea that doesn't feel like it's going to be workable. That's Will Cahoe, the communications lead for the General Services Administration's 10X program, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Still to come on Federal News Network, new proposed privacy rules from the Federal Labor Relations Authority. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. The Federal Labor Relations Authority has proposed several revisions to rules concerning its duties under the Privacy Act, including duties assigned to the Office of the Solicitor. For more on what's going on and what you need to know, Tom Temin talked with FLRA's solicitor, Thomas So. And it looks like this is more than just a slight administrative cleanup in these proposed rules. What's exactly going on? So... It's significant in the sense of three areas for the FLRA. One is to recognize the growing independence of the IG's office. So we want to create in the regulations a parallel system for IG records, inspector general records. So the inspector general could decide instead of the authority deciding the propriety of releasing certain records. I think the second point is due to shrinking budgets and resources and just the trend of centralizing services, we wanted to focus all the requests across the nation with the solicitor's office. It was important not to have sort of each office sending out perhaps inconsistent responses or having inconsistent policies. And the third point is just the increasing responsibilities of the senior agency official for privacy, which is also the solicitor for the FLRA. And so we want to make sure that for all compliance purpose, for compliance, the senior agency official for privacy has a central role in administering the Privacy Act process. And what types of records would typically be concerned with here? That is to say, hearings or decisions that the authority is making that might have personally identifiable information in it? Or tell us about the types of records you deal with. Sure. So a lot of the records that we deal with are internal records, internal HR and 
only FLRA employees have records in the system, but most importantly for the broader audience, we do apply the Privacy Act to the grievance procedure system. So situations when outside current and former federal employees are filing grievance going through our process, we do have an obligation and we take it very seriously to preserve their privacy. And we act as a quasi-judicial body. And it's important for us that people can trust us, that we can maintain their private records in our system. might be useful to review what the FLRA does with respect to grievance, because you've got the Merit Systems Protection Board for some branch of this, and you've got the Office of Special Counsel for another. And sometimes people get lost in the subtleties of difference between the types of things they handle. We manage sort of labor relations, so obligations that occur under collective bargaining. And in these agreements, if employees or if the union feels an agency has violated some obligation that were collectively bargained, that's where the FRA system sort of kicks in, in contrast to the other systems, which are more independent sort of statutory systems. Right. So if there was an EEO type of related claim or a unfair personnel practice outside of what's in those labor provisions, that would not go to the FLRA. In other words, grievances with respect to the clauses in that particular union agreement. There is some overlap in the sense that there are unfair labor practices that may turn on some discrimination or issues that relate to unfair labor practices. But Yes, you're quite correct that there are sort of demarcation of where they should go to if they want to take an EEO claim or if they want to have MSPB claim for unfair personnel practices. We're speaking with Thomas So. He is solicitor of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. And this rule proposal, which would then consolidate IG records under the inspector general and all the other records under you as solicitor and also the chief privacy officer, this in some ways, a response to an executive order going back some years. Yes. It's in response to a 2016 executive order and subsequent OMB's guidance that established the senior agency officer for privacy across the federal government. But it created a lot of flexibility on how it should be applied to different agencies. And so one of the things that we were looking at is how do we fit the SAOP role within a smaller agency like the FLRA? Right. And the seeking of records, is it mostly from FOIA requests or do you get other types of records calls? So mostly from FOIA, and this is one of the other reasons we want to revise the regulations. We also had to revise the FOIA regulations to update that. So they're mostly working tandem. And we use similar systems to process sort of these records. So oftentimes people outside who might want to look at their own grievance information was included in their grievance records. They will have a privacy and a FOIA request at the same time. So in many ways, you're the top FOIA officer now, as well as the privacy officer. This is why the centralization of roles, once SAOP became very important in a federal government, and once we took on sort of the chief FOIA officer role within FLRA, it it made sense to then start centralizing the regulations with the Office of the Solicitor and becoming one conduit where people can ask questions. Now, are there any changes in the criteria for what constitutes privacy-related material that cannot be released? We have tried to maintain sort of the similar system, but merely streamline our processes to make sure that people understand that the office solicitor is not taking the central role. We also tried to create more explicit sort of ways in which you can get in contact with me. For example, creating an email box in the regulation so they can directly contact the office and explicit procedures and how you can get accountings of who we've given the records to. 
And with respect to the content of the records, you don't want to be the person who decides what it is that can be released and not released, and also the person who decides whether something can be released. In other words, shouldn't there be some separation between the policy on privacy and the execution of the policy? The policy itself goes through, this is why we need a regulation, it goes through notice and comment, and it goes through the the whole agency has to approve of the general regulations and our general policy. We take the responsibility of looking at each record and ensuring that, you know, we're redacting all the records for PII, and that takes a lot of the work and a legal analysis to determine whether something has to be redacted or not. And do you do that yourself? Do you have a contractor that maybe executes the redactions, even though it's not really a contractor's role to decide? what's redacted. But how do you get all that work done? It is becoming uh, more and more difficult as it's easier to file for a request given everything's electronic nowadays, our Privacy Act request. But we have a staff of two other attorneys and all three of us take a share in the responsibilities. In a small agency, when resources are limited, we all have to take on a role and our share of, of the burden. And how many FOIA and records requests come in? What's the volume that you get in a given year? So I don't have that off the top of my head, but we do have FOIA reports online that report to the DOJ, which are all public information, and we're about ready to file our annual report. We do get quite a few requests every year. Order of magnitude, is it tens, hundreds, thousands, or ten thousands? In the hundreds, but I think what I've seen, it's been increasing over the years. And does it tend to ebb and flow with where a particular agency's labor relations contract negotiations are going? In other words, some of these recently settled contracts have been years in the making. And now that they're settled, are people finding grievances? So a lot of the FOIA requests, uh, so we're talking about FOIA requests, less Privacy Act requests. So a lot of the FOIA requests are from outside parties, news media. Every time there's perhaps a story in the news, there's a FOIA request to follow up to get more information about those requests. And since it's so easy to now file FOIA requests, Many more news organizations, I think, are getting involved in filing requests every time there's a news article. Yeah, I'm sure we have, too. And by the way, does the solicitor do when you're not handling all of the FOIA and privacy requests? So my primary job is to represent the FLRA in court to defend our decisions in the D.C. Circuit in the Court of Appeals. Thomas So is solicitor of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. We'll post this interview along with a link to the proposed rule updates at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead on Federal News Network, new leadership at the Professional Managers Association. We'll talk with PMA's new executive director next on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. I'm Jared Serbu filling in. There is new leadership in the organization that represents managers and other non-union employees at the Eternal Revenue Service. Kelly Reyes was named as the Professional Managers Association's new executive director last week. She replaces Chad Hooper, who left the organization this past summer. Reyes previously served as PMA's national vice president, and she's here with us now to talk about the new role. Kelly, first of all, congratulations, and definitely want to talk about some of your priorities for PMA, but but it, get us started, if you would, by talking just a bit about your background, both at the agency and at PMA, and the pathway that led you up to this point. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, you know, before I came to the IRS, I had a career as a principal of a school, and I was also an adjunct professor 
for a private university. My husband and I, we own several businesses, very successful businesses, and I was also a speaker for educational workshops. So I really came from a place of wanting to make an impact and be a part um, of people's lives. When I came to the IRS, I came because I had a life change with my mom and she um, was having going through Alzheimer's and my sister lived in Austin and I temporarily relocated to help her. And that's when I came on board IRS temporarily. I had only planned to work there for just a few short years and then go back to Arlington with my family. But before I knew it, my family wanted to locate to Austin. And 14 years later, I was still there at the IRS. I was served as a IRS manager for 10 years. I was a frontline manager, a department manager, and a territory manager. And I loved every minute of it. I had the opportunity to learn about government leadership and to manage from many different perspectives as I worked in different business units across the IRS. I was mentored by some amazing executives and senior leaders, and these rich experiences and the knowledge that I gained from them and my leadership skills, I really think those are the things that helped prepare me to be the executive director for PMA. So now I'm eager and I'm ready to take on the challenges of our managers and to grow PMA into a strong voice that will lead our association into the future. And I imagine the, the fundamental goals and objectives of the organization aren't going to change much here, but what do you really want to emphasize in your leadership role here? You know, there's some big concerns that keep getting elevated. One of them is the compensation for managers. They really want a fair and equitable compensation that's reflective of their um, performance. Uh, we would really like to see um, that the IRS come in and revamp that system you know, the pay band system is really made up of three different pay bands. And that is their, their compensation is based on this performance. PMA supports the reform uh, to make sure that the pay is fair, that it's fully funded, and that it's equitable, and that it really truly rewards their per performance. We're hoping to see that it's going to be transparent, that it's going to be well communicated, and it's going to provide the avenues managers need for advancement. We also want to make sure that the performance ratings uh, are not just solely based on their mid-year or their annual discussion. We want to see the managers get consistent feedback throughout the year and counseling for their rating periods. You know, managers and even non-bargaining unit employees, they should have a process to grieve their performance appraisals when they don't see uh, what they should be seeing. And right now, the only one they can grieve to is the people who approve the performance appraisals. So we would like to see a change there. Uh, we would also like to see that the performance awards uh, that they get um, shouldn't be denied to managers or non-bargaining unit employees when they reach their pay gap. So there's lots of things to look at uh, for that. But we also want to see management development. You know, our managers uh, need training at all the different levels that they work at. It is so important that our service managers are also included in this training. The service centers have a cadre of managers, and these frontline managers only work during peak periods. So it's difficult for them to participate in training when they're not up in a non-bargaining unit position. So these managers really need to be involved and they need to be equipped before they come up when the season starts. So many of these aspiring managers, when they come into these roles, 
they forfeit their bargaining unit um, awards, and we would like to see them not lose those awards when they step up. Uh, the last thing that we're really focused on in our goals at PMA is just retention. The IRS really needs to consider putting managers in place, uh, putting the measures in place that will attract and retain good managers. Larger performance bonuses for them uh, would go a long way in helping keep these managers, especially since the responsibility that they gain when their manager is not necessarily commensurate with their pay. To retain managers, we have to have a program in place for them to encourage them to return and to encourage them to seek the permanent positions when those are announced. If I can step back a bit to the pay reform issue that that you started that last answer with, for people who aren't tracking this issue, can you just tell us a little bit about what you see as the deficiencies in the current pay system? Well, the managers, they're, they're subject to this alternative pay. It's the IR pay band, and it's made up of three pay bands. So their compensation is based um, on their performance, but it's subjective to the leadership. PMA supports that the reform that they get on the pay band system, it needs to be fair. It needs to be reflective of their performance. It also needs to be fully funded. We don't feel that it's fully funded for them. Uh, it needs to be more equitable to the work that they do. In the um, Performance Management Review Board, many times there are people reviewing uh, the annual appraisals that managers do, and they're not familiar with the work. So the way a performance appraisal is written is very important that it strategically communicates what the manager did, and it's subjective as to whether or not someone feels they've met the expectations, they've exceeded it, or they're outstanding in their job. So we would like to see more equity involved in that process. And speaking of funding, on the topic of IRS funding in general, you know, in talking with your predecessor over the years, just gotten the general sense that underfunding at the IRS has been almost demoralizing, I think is the word I would use for, for a lot of the workforce, including managers. I'm just curious for your perspective on how much has changed in that arena with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the huge influx of money that's come into the IRS budget. How has the agency been spending that and has it changed things? Well, you know, we have our new commissioner, Dan Werfel. And he's really uh, in tune with what the IRS needs. And he really is in tune with opening up communication lines and listening to the leadership and the employees throughout the IRS. So I think that is really a big first step in making the types of changes that the IRS needs. But he's also in tune with what the agency is going through. PMA really supports uh, the sufficient funding for the IRS We're not able to make the policy changes we need to make unless that funding is there and that funding is consistent. PMA will always support and ensure that the IRS receives what it needs to carry out its mission and to be able to uh, fulfill the mandates that are handed down by Congress. IRS funding has to be maintained. But not only that, we also need to make sure that the annual and on-time appropriations are received. IRS supports the consistent funding and the budget reform. I think one of the biggest problems we feel is that we keep getting caught up in these continuing resolution and these shutdowns and these across the agency board budget cuts. They're really counterproductive and they cost the taxpayers more money in the long run. You know, when you think about it, there's not a private business out there that would survive or even thrive 
if their budgets were reduced without regard to their programs, the priorities they've set, and even if their financial planning was subject to, you know, annual political whims or or complete shutdowns. The federal sector, this system leads to inconsistent hiring and staffing. It leads to processing backlogs, which we all saw in the news. And it also, most importantly, leads to the inability to deliver the customer service that we feel our citizens deserve. Kelly Reyes is the new executive director at the Professional Managers Association. We'll post a link to this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead on Federal News Network, the Army is confident it's finally solving the challenge of moving to a modern contract writing system. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tom Temin is away. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in. The Army's six-year journey to implement a modern contract writing system is about to hit a key benchmark. After testing its minimum viable product with about 100 users at 29 different sites over the summer, the Army plans to triple the number of users in the early part of next year. Bill Hepworth, the Army's Deputy Program Executive Officer for Enterprise Information Systems, tells Federal News Network Executive Editor Jason Miller about why this attempt to develop an Army contract writing system will be different than previous efforts. There's about six major uh, function areas that they're using, and most of it having to do with contract initiation. And to date, as I understand it, they've already initiated 27 different contracts uh, using this capability. It's also allowing us to start importing certain elements of data already and also to publish these contracts. So it's, uh, it's coming along uh, much according to the plan that we established uh, when we started this. Now, this has been a journey for the Army in many ways. And, and as you said, and we're going to get into the really transformation that the POEIS is going through around digital and agile uh, efforts. But give me a sense of, of what made you kind of decide that the, the effort with CGI just wasn't going to work out, that this Air Force Con IT system really was the best way to go. Help me walk that 14 months ago as you made that decision. I, I know you are forgive me if I'm wrong here, but fairly new to PEOEIS, but uh, I, I know there's probably a little bit of background that you're familiar with. The process started obviously before the pivot point, and what we are always doing here at PEOEIS is trying to deliver the right products as fast as we can deliver them, and especially under Mr. Guckert, that has been a primary drive, is moving timelines left, not right. So, what happened was we were performing a lot of uh, research to determine how best to get this contract writing solution in the hands of the contracting professionals as quickly as possible. So as you've probably heard, the Air Force uh, contracting IT solution was actually being used very effectively by the Air Force. And as we began uh, having conversations with them, we realized there's a tremendous amount of synergy between Army contracting and the Air Force's contracting approach in such the point where we looked at it and said that the actual shortest path is not to continue on the path that we are presently on, but rather to pivot and to use an existing GOTS product. So that kind of informed our decision to enter into an interagency agreement with the Air Force and also the uh, Department of Agriculture, who was acting as our integrator, and then DLA subsequently for the hosting. So. What we really have now is we are leveraging an existing capability via um, government interagency agreements, uh, which is working out exceptionally well. 
that decision is always difficult, right? I mean, you, you go down a path, you invest money, you invest time, you invest all this effort. How much of that that you had used, that you invested through the, the, the initial effort with CGI, were able to kind of pick up and move over to the Air Force Con IT system, even if it's just some of the data and the taxonomy or the processes? Obviously, the technology is different. We know that. But how much of it were you able to, to reuse? Uh, because I think a lot of people say, well, was all that money, and I know you didn't spend a ton of money on CGI with CGI, but was that wasted or were you able to, to take advantage of some of that? Yeah, I would say we're able to take advantage of an awful lot, right? So one of the most expensive parts of building a system really doesn't always come from the IT side. Frequently, it comes from the business process reengineering efforts, uh, the requirements definition, and as you stated, starting to figure out your data taxonomies and information you need to collect. It also includes starting the SLA process with your uh, data partners. And so we were able to leverage pretty much all of that. There was heavy usage from what it came before, and I think you brought up a really good point, too, is that the PEO really does not take it lightly ever to have to pivot. You know, once, once we get a plan down, we like to execute that plan. However, again, we hold ourselves to a very high standard in terms of delivering, and our obligation is to our functionals and make sure that we get them the products they're asking for at the fastest possible delivery cadence we can. And so that ultimately, I think, was the tipping factor in us pivoting. One of the things when you talk about the pivot and, and, and the business process reengineering efforts, did you, over the years, the concern was, well, the Army is the Army and the Air Force is the Air Force and the Navy is the Navy and you all are different. And, you know, you do contracting similarly but differently. Did you find that your actually business processes and even the data taxonomies were closer than you initially thought? It, it, did that help drive the change that this GOT system really met, and again, you know, we always hear the 80-20 rule, 80% of your needs, and then that other 20% can be customized. And I don't, I don't know for your, per, if it was really 80-20, but some high percentage, I'm sure it did meet. There's a couple facets of, of that. So the BPR that we invested in and that interactivity with the Air Force and kind of going over, it's like, hey, how do you do it? How do you, how do you perform your contracting? We were able to see that there was actually more commonality than difference. There, that those minor differences were easily accounted for by the strategy that we've chosen to go down. So we are not trying to work with the Air Force and the Navy and Army and get us all to do the exact same contracting pattern. This is more of a coalition of the willing, and we're all heading down a common path, building out a common core for the contracting components that we agree on, but all of us still reserve the right to customize the code further to handle the specific contracting processes that we we're beholden to. Now, there's an interesting other evolution that PEOAS has begun under, and our functionals are in lockstep with it, and that is we want to use commercial practices when possible and military when necessary, and you'll hear that catchphrase used frequently. So I think the big willingness uh, for all of the parties involved to actually start adopting more commercial-like processes is giving us a common language to operate from. And this is something we'll be applying to our other future big programs as well, that rather than trying to hammer our underlying platforms into the military processes, we're showing that flexibility and agility to adapt our processes to the products where it makes sense. How are you measuring the success of ACWS implementation? Uh, I think, what are your metrics? How are you saying this is meeting the user's needs, this is meeting the Army's needs more generally? Obviously, the most critical is going to be user adoption. 
And by user adoption, we don't mean simply somebody used the system because they were ordered to do it. We want to see our users not only use the system, but to become vocal proponents for it, to uh, be engaged in helping us drive future enhancements for it. So that really becomes our overall metric is the end user community's interaction with the product and their love of the product. Obviously, we want to meet the mission and make sure the functionals are also happy that it achieves their goals as well. And very importantly, what we're trying to also do is going back to the data-driven organization part is we really want to see this in the form of metrics. So for example, when we do user studies now and we do surveys, we're literally trying to capture metrics on how they feel about the system and areas that they would like to improve. And we don't just do it at the system level. We ask them at the module level saying, how did you feel about starting a new contract in ACWS? And we'll get ratings down at that level. And so we capture that information and it helps us make sure that we are on track with each one of our deliveries according to the civilians and the soldiers that use it. Over the long term, as you said, you I think when you at the very beginning of our conversation, Bill, you mentioned the numbers, uh, about 2,800 users for six months of 2024. Uh, I imagine others, you'll continue to expand assuming everything goes well. Uh, is there a goal to say, we want the army, all contracting officers to use this system by a certain date or a certain timeline, what's the long-term vision? Long-term vision is we, we would like to have around 10,000 of the uh, Army contracting professionals using the system, and I think that in, in encompasses some 300 sites. So, yeah, we, we would like ACWS to be the contract writing solution, bar none. Uh, across the Army. Bill Hepworth is the Army's Deputy Program Executive Officer for Enterprise Information Systems. To hear his full discussion with Jason Miller, check out the latest episode of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Biden administration is pushing technology manufacturers to adopt stronger security practices. Part of that push is making sure the government's own software vendors can vouch for the security of their products. That'll involve signing off on a new form being developed by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me now. He's been covering this issue. Hey, Justin. Hey, Jared. So what is new with this uh, software security form from CISA? Yeah, CISA released the second draft of this secure software development attestation form last week. It released the initial version uh, back in April. And this form will require the government software vendors to attest to following the standards, many of the standards laid out in the National Institute of Standards and Technologies Secure Software Development Framework. It's just a bunch of different standards for securely developing software. It applies to agencies' use of third-party software, so it doesn't apply to open-source software or internally developed software. So this really affects kind of the vast array of contractors who sell software to federal agencies, and it's really a key component of the post-SolarWinds hack push to really ensure agencies are using securely built software. Now, one key difference in the latest version of this form from the initial draft is that it would require a software company's chief executive officer or chief operating officer to sign the form. The previous version would have allowed a CEO to designate an employee to sign the attestation and kind of push that down. This is going to require one of those top two executives to sign off on the company's secure development practices. Yeah, what's the thinking, what's the reasoning behind that, moving that signature uh, requirement all the way up to the C-suite level? 
Yeah, there's a few things going on behind the scenes here. You know, CISA and the Biden administration really believe security needs to be a top level issue for companies. And in the C-suite, as it's called, uh, the Biden administration's national cyber strategy calls for shifting more cybersecurity responsibilities to technology providers rather than leaving it to consumers and end users. And CISA has really urged businesses to embrace its secure by design practices at the same time, the federal government, as we've talked about, wants to use its own purchasing power to kind of advance those principles, those secure by design practices. So this is really getting that those practices front and center in front of the, the CEOs and COOs of companies that sell to the federal government, many of which are some of the biggest technology vendors out there. Jason Weiss is the former Defense Department's Chief Software Officer, and he's now COO of Testify Sec Inc. He said the attestation uh, is really a big step in terms of forcing top-level executives to think about security. The greatest value of this attestation is that it forces the C-suite and software engineers to have hard conversations. In the past, there was very little reason for a COO or a CEO to go talk to an engineering manager or an engineering director to ask them about how do you make sure what you're building is safe and resilient because of this attestation, they realize that they have to walk the halls and open those doors and have those types of conversations where none existed before. And again, that's Jason Weiss, the former Defense Department Chief Software Officer. And Justin, what else would vendors need to worry about when they're signing this form? Yeah, well, you know, it also comes uh, amid really a beefed up effort from the Justice Department to enforce compliance with cybersecurity standards through the False Claims Act. Uh, We've seen several cases over the last couple of years where the Justice Department has successfully uh, either gotten a settlement or sued a company where a a whistleblower actually brought forward Um, claims about them uh, essentially um, not being in compliance with government cybersecurity standards. So there's that kind of backstop there legally. Uh, The Securities and Exchange Commission is also actively suing SolarWinds and its chief information security officer, uh, accusing them of misleading investors for not disclosing known risks and not accurately representing the company's cybersecurity measures uh, again, SolarWinds, the company at the center of that 2020 hack. Uh, so, so, you know, you've got the SEC kind of going after companies, going after the C-suite for potentially misleading investors, allegedly misleading investors. I talked to multiple folks who who pointed to that SEC case as really um, basically driving C-suite attention toward cybersecurity in a way that it, there really hasn't been before. Yeah, and we heard in that clip from Jason Weiss that he at least seems pretty supportive of this whole idea. What are you hearing from the rest of industry about these uh, requirements? Well, so far, you know, we haven't heard a lot of initial reaction from the second draft of the form. The The first draft released earlier this year got a lot of feedback um, around just essentially making it easier for companies to comply with the requirements of the form, the the secure software development framework. Uh, if they had already gotten a third party assessment under the FedRAMP program, for instance, 
Um, companies can attest to those requirements by submitting that assessment rather than signing off on the form. So that's one change that uh, CISA made in this latest version of the form. And that's something that groups like the Information Technology Industry Council uh, applauded. At the same time, they're encouraging both CISA and the White House to continue partnering with industry to really um, address outstanding issues like defining who exactly is responsible for a complex system where there's multiple pieces of software, for instance. So there's still some questions to be worked out, but uh, the, the word that I heard was cautiously optimistic about this development. And of course, the point of all this isn't just to sign a form. It's to actually take the steps that you need to to make sure your software is secure. So what are those steps that, that people need to be thinking through before they can make that attestation? Well, you know, the, the NIST Secure Software Development Framework kind of lays out uh, uh, dozens of, of different practices that software vendors can follow to be in compliance with the framework. And, you know, it's a pretty broad framework. There's a lot of options for how uh, organizations can go about meeting the different kind of um, concepts within it. Uh, as I mentioned, you could get a FedRAMP certification if you're, you know, a cloud uh, offering, and that would put you in compliance and show that you've done your security homework per se. CISA is also giving agencies the option to request additional artifacts from vendors under this form. And one of those is a software bill of materials or an SBOM, essentially a list of ingredients that shows the different build libraries that can be found in a given software product. So that's an option. It's not a requirement with this form, but that's an option for agencies. Uh, beyond that, you know, Weiss and others pointed out that the attestation doesn't really give agencies insights into uh, the specific security measures that a company uses. It's just that, an attestation that says we did this with kind of the legal and regulatory backstops that I talked about earlier. So, you know, it's kind of walking this middle ground and it's going to be interesting to see how it drives security forward within government. Here's Weiss again. I would say that overall industry is cautious about this form. I think we understand as an industry that something has to change and that this is probably the first step in a marathon of changes that will have to happen for us to have a more resilient software supply chain. But everybody recognizes, I think the government and industry both, a simple piece of paper with a wet signature from a CEO is not going to change the security overnight. And again, that's Jason Weiss, the Defense Department's former chief software officer. And, and Justin, so what's what's the timeline here and what else needs to happen for this new forum process to, to actually go into effect? Yeah, this form is just a draft again, and it's open for comment uh, through December 18th. Now, once the form is finalized, uh, OMB is requiring agencies to start using it uh, within three months for critical software and within six months for just about any other third-party software that's covered by these requirements. So once OMB finalizes the form, that starts that clock. At the same time, the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council is working on a new rule that would formalize this kind of requirement for attestation as a government-wide acquisition requirement, a FAR, FAR, FAR rule. But that is still in draft, and it's still up in the air as to when exactly that will be finalized. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks very much. Thanks, Jerk. 
And you can find Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. I'm Jared Serbu filling in.